Listening to all your prayers this morning, I was struck that a lot of them matched what I was going to talk about. Last Torah portion, I was reading the Lord Sachs, and as I read it, I thought, wow, that would make a great sermon. And what he was talking about was what's so special about the patriarchs. Now, it wasn't long enough. So this week, I got a flyer that we get from a guy named Larry Arn from Hillsdale College. Larry Arn is president of Hillsdale College, and he is a constitutional scholar. The things that he was talking about meshed with some of the things that Lord Sachs was talking about. And between them, I may have come up with a sermon. So the question is, what's so special about us? The first part of that question is, who is us? And I want to channel my inner Baptist here and give you three possible us's. The first one is the patriarchs. And what Lord Sachs says is the patriarchs, as you read their lives, the first several chapters of Genesis is the beginning. And it tells you that God exists and that he cares what you do and that there are consequences for bad behavior and so forth. And then from Exodus on, we have the giving of laws, we have the establishment of a covenant, we have lots of theology and so forth, and that makes sense. But the place where we are now, which is the lives of the patriarchs, why so much ink? And if you look at it, there isn't any new theology presented. Certainly the patriarchs believe in God, but so does Pharaoh. In fact, today in the Torah portion, Pharaoh says to Joseph, Wow, you are a man in whom the Spirit of God is. So they recognize God. Laban recognizes God. God speaks to Laban. Esau recognizes God. So God deals with other people besides the patriarchs. God makes promises to other people besides the patriarchs. So, for example, Ishmael gets his own inheritance and his own progeny go after him, as does Esau. And he gets his own place and so forth. So there are promises made to other people in this section of Scripture. So what is it about the patriarchs that's so special? And the answer Sachs comes up with, and I've taught this before myself, is every time the patriarchs get outside of their own community, what they wind up doing is encountering a sexual free-for-all. So what we see, for example, in the case of Abraham and Isaac is Abraham goes down to Egypt and Abraham goes to Gerar and Isaac goes to Gerar. And in all those cases, they are terrified that they're going to be killed and their wives are going to be scarfed up by the local leader and stuck in his harem. And in fact, the local leader does scarf up their wives and it's only God that reaches out and touches Abimelech or Pharaoh and says, "Uh uh-uh, you can't have that woman. Similarly, when Jacob comes back to the land and he's up in Shechem, what happens to his daughter? The local leader scarfs her up, takes her into his harem, and and, uh, so forth. The other one that is kind of ambiguous is uh, Judah and Tamar. And in that case, Judah is unattached. He's a widower at that point. And Tamar is simply trying to get the marriage right that is due her. So it's a little ambiguous, but basically every time the patriarchs get outside of their own community, what they encounter is a sexual free-for-all. And in fact, what God says is you need to circumcise your sexuality and bring it under control. 
And what you see in the patriarchs is they, in fact, do bring it under control as opposed to everyone around them. So the only thing, really, that is unique about the patriarchs is this idea of rejecting the prevailing way of the world, if you will, and the sexual free-for-all that exists. Now, the word that we're looking for there is discipline. And so what I really want to talk to you about is discipleship. That's the subject of the exercise today. What the patriarchs do is they exercise self-discipline, if you will, in the sexual realm. And they're the first ones that do that. Now, there's two versions of the Great Commission. You all know the Great Commission, right? There's a version in Matthew, chapter 28, at the end of the book, and I will read it to you verbatim. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Yeshua had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Yeshua came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission as it's written in Matthew. It's also written in Mark. And that's again at the end of Mark in chapter 16. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. Notice we have two different venues. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So you have two versions of the Great Commission and notice they are different. Now, something struck me that I had never seen before as I was reading that. You all remember the camp in the wilderness where you've got the four tribal groups. And those, of course, mirror the four living things around the throne room of God, and those also mirror the four Gospels. So you have the camp on the east, which is Judah, the lion, You have the camp in the south, which is Reuben, the man. You have the camp on the west, which is Ephraim, the ox. And then you have the camp on the north, which is Dan, the eagle. And, of course, you have the four Gospels. So the Gospel of Matthew presents Yeshua as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Gospel of Mark presents Yeshua as the suffering servant. Notice those are Ephraim and Judah. Notice that those are the two tribes that get the major blessing from Jacob as he dies. So one is given the blessing of rulership, and the other one is given the blessing of fruitfulness and land and so forth. So one is a servant, and Joseph today is presented as the suffering servant, is he not? So you have the great commission from the position of the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and what does that great commission say to do? Go to all the nations and make them disciples. It is a commission from the king of what you are to be doing to the rest of the world. And then you have the commission from the servant. Go preach the gospel. 
and everyone who believes will be saved. You have two different commissions from two different tribes covering two different things, both valid. I'm not suggesting one's valid and the other's not. It's simply from the perspective of the king, this is what I want you to do. From the perspective of the suffering servant, this is what I want you to do. Now, my talk today is going to concentrate on the king side. That's where we're going to go. The next place I want to go is to Sinai. And there is where the nation of Israel is born and where the church is born. They're both born at the same place. And what God does there is he gives us a body of law. But the thing about this law that is interesting is he puts his trust in us. One of the things that there is not in that body of law is a way of enforcement. There isn't any special government set up other than elders and judges. And who's the king? God. And furthermore, God warns the people of Israel, the day is going to come when you're going to want a king, and this is going to be a really bad idea, but you're going to do it anyway, right? Remember Samuel? They come and say they want a king, and God says, really bad idea, but go ahead and let them do it, right? So the way God set it up with his people is what I will call a high-trust environment. And the word of God doesn't come to the king and get passed down from the king to the people. The word of God is given directly to the people. Everybody. Everybody is standing there. Everybody gets the commission of the king. Everybody gets the word of God. Everybody is expected to obey it and to enforce it within the community. Very little government structure there. The government structure is basically elders and judges. So within your community, you appoint elders. And they're the ones that manage stuff, and then you have judges who can make decisions. But this system only works with a people who is self-disciplined and moral. Anybody remember what our founding fathers say? I gave you a republic if you can keep it. It is only sufficient for a self-disciplined and moral people. It is insufficient for any other. That's a loose quote, but one of the founding fathers said that. So let's come now to the founding of the United States. The United States was set up as a high-trust community with everybody, every, not everybody obviously, but the vast majority of people believed in God and believed in the laws of God. And so what they did is they set up a government which assumes that the people create the government and then the government serves the people. And the way it's set up, and this is from Larry Arn, and he said a few things that I hadn't actually thought of. That's why he's president of Hillsdale College and I'm not. I mean, this guy's really sharp. One of the things he says is the people can alter or abolish the government, but not right away. There is a procedure whereby the people can alter the government. And the government then acts during a period of two to four years, depending on what the period is, and the people then watch what happens and say, that's either good or bad. And then there's a procedure for the people to go back in and interact with the government. The whole concept was originally very few laws that everybody could understand. One of the things that just tickles the heck out of me, I just find it amazing, is so much of the body of Christ thinks that 613 laws is too many. 
you can't follow 613 laws. Read the federal laws and regulations that we have, and you're expected to obey all of those. But 613 is too many. Wrap your mind around the absurdity of that. And what the founding fathers in the United States set up is modeled on Israel, which is to say a government with decentralized power. So you have four centers of power in the United States as originally conceived. Center one was the legislature. Center two was the executive. Center three was the judicial. And center four was the people. And somebody mentioned multiculturalism today. A high trust community requires a certain degree of homogeneity. I have to know that Brian has sort of the same worldview that I do. I mean, he doesn't exactly. He's a union guy, and I'm not. And there's a bunch of things about Brian that are different from me, but on fundamental things, we share the same worldview. So I can trust Brian. As Rush Limbaugh says, I would trust him with my daughter in a Motel 6, because I know at core our values are the same. When Ahmed comes in from the desert of Syria, I have no such trust about Ahmed because his worldview is entirely different than mine, and I don't know what he's going to do. He may be a really good guy. He may be entirely moral. All that kind of stuff may be true about him, but I don't know that. So when we get a bunch of Syrian refugees that get plugged into Minnesota or something, and you got white bread Minnesota where everybody's a Swede, and we all do the traditional whiteners at Christmas, and you get this block of Somali refugees, there's no trust there. Not because Somali refugees may be bad people, they may or may not. The point is, I don't know. Whereas the white bread Swedes, okay, we've got sort of the same worldview, and I can trust them without knowing them personally. So the United States government was set up as a high-trust community. This is a high-trust community that we live in. We help each other out. Brian takes the money home every week. And we know it's going to come back, and it's always going to be there. We know that if one of us has a problem, he can call somebody else and not worry about letting that person come into his house to help him out. Because, again, we all share, at some level, similar worldview. And as I say, we're not the same. That's not the objective here. We're all different, but on the fundamental things, we're all the same. And that's what the United States was set up for. Fundamentally, we're all the same, even though you got these people up in Massachusetts that do really strange stuff, and they speak funny and all that kind of stuff, as compared to the guys from Georgia who are really funny. But we all have the same worldview, which is why this last election was so important, because what the last election did is we the people, that fourth center of power, rose up and said, the experiment where we're doing multiculturalism, where we are changing the foundation of the government, doesn't work. And so what we did is we rose up and we said, to heck with you and the horse you rode in on. That was what this election was about. And whether or not it succeeds in doing what we hope it does, that's for God and time to tell. But one of the things that happened in the United States is instead of having decentralized power over the years, and this, by the way, was imported from Germany, and I'm German, so I can talk about them pejoratively, but these are the same people that gave you 
the Nazis. And what they did is they set up an administrative state. And what they've done is they have unified executive, legislative, and judicial into one bureaucratic organization. So you now have organizations like the Department of Education, the EPA, the Commerce Department, you name it. These departments have within themselves the ability to make laws. They call them regulations instead of laws. They have the ability to make laws. They have the ability to enforce those laws. And they have the ability to render judgments, administrative law judges. And it's absolutely extra-constitutional. And in fact, when that stuff was being set up at the early part of the 20th century, one of the things that they were worried about, they knew all this stuff was unconstitutional. And what they did is they said, well, but it's more efficient. The Germans. By the way, ethnically in the United States, among white people, Germans are the largest ethnic group. And you got people in Minnesota who are Catholic Lutheran, and they have one way of doing things, which, by the way, is why we set up states instead of having everything synchronized. So the people in Massachusetts could burn Quakers at the stake if they liked, but that didn't mess with the people in Connecticut. And that's okay. Not burning Quakers at the stake, and that's not okay. But you understand what I'm talking about. So our problem right now is over the last hundred years, we have allowed our system to drift into this administrative state and what that administrative state does it's like the blob, it just keeps absorbing more and more stuff. So instead of having a community of law-abiding citizens where everybody understands the law, what we now have is a community of administrative compliance where everybody is afraid of what the government is going to do because nobody understands the law, not even specialists. The laws have become so voluminous that nobody can understand them anymore, which is, again, directly contrary to God. God was able to get by with 613 laws. God figured that was enough. 613, that's really all you need. That isn't good enough for us. We have got tens of thousands of pages of obscure regulations that nobody understands. And so what happens is you can run afoul of some bureaucrat who can pull out something and turn your life into a living hell for something that you had no idea was wrong. That is directly contrary to what we were set up to be because we were modeled on Sinai. And our Christian brothers and sisters say 10, we say 613, but the 10 encompasses 613 so we're all on the same page. So your Christian brothers and sisters are fine with their 10. We'll take our 613 and we can all have lunch. It's okay. What we can't do is the tens of thousands of pages because nobody understands that. And so instead of having our 10 or 613, depending on how you want to count, where all of us can look around and say, wait a minute, that's wrong. And what then happens is we, the people, become part of what makes us a law-abiding nation because we can all say that's wrong because the laws are so simple we understand them and that makes us then the fourth center of power in the government because we as law-abiding citizens can say wait a minute that person is not law-abiding because I know what the laws are and he isn't doing it whereas if Eric pulls a pond on his farm, he may have 
10,000 bureaucrats show up and say, you can't do that and we're going to fine you and take your farm away from you. Whereas everybody in here would look at that and say, what's wrong with that? And so we've had an earthquake in the English-speaking world in the last year. And what you have in Great Britain is they looked at the European Union and say, to heck with you, and we're leaving. What you've had in the United States is we looked up and said, to heck with you and your multiculturalism, and we're going to stop. Now, having said that, if this is going to succeed, big if, because you've got lots and lots of people who don't want it to succeed. You've got lots and lots of people who depend on the system as it is, and they're going to fight tooth and nail to preserve their system. So the only way that this has a chance of working is if, 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 you folks go out and start making disciples. This is the first of the great commissions. Remember, this is the commission from the king. It's talking about government. And by the way, the Bible is the most highly political tract in the history of mankind. It is all politics. So if people tell you you can't mix politics and religion, just tell them to go pound sand. Because the Bible is an entirely political document. And it depends on you going out and making disciples, which is to say, getting your friends and neighbors on the same sheet morally as you are. As I say, they don't have to be the same as you. Brian is perfectly free to be a union guy. It's okay. I think unions are abomination. We can still do lunch. It's okay. Because on fundamental things, Brian and I agree. And we can be in community. There's two great commissions, right? One from the king and one from the suffering servant. And I'm talking about the one from the king today. And that is go out and make disciples. And what you need to do is you need to confront the people who are from the other side. Which brings us back to the patriarchs. Thought I'd never get there, didn't you? Because what is the one thing that unifies those who are against the Word of God in the United States right now? Sex. Isn't the great fear of those who are going berserk right now over the election of Trump, he's going to take away your ability to have an abortion, he's going to put you back in the closet, he's going to, it's all sex. So we're back at the patriarchs again. And the thing that unifies the liberal experiment, if you will, other than a desire for power, and that's, that's a big one, is sex. And the thing that's unique about the patriarchs is sexual self-discipline. That's what circumcision is all about. That's why circumcision is done where it's done. It's telling you, you've got to control this most powerful of your drives. And sex is the most powerful drive in humanity. It is absolutely consuming. It truly is. And what God is saying is you need to bring that under control. What the liberal experiment says is, no you don't. And as I say, if you read some of the people who are going berserk right now, at the core, it all revolves around sex. So, as you go out and you make disciples, which is what your job is, go make disciples, you need to understand what you're confronting. You're confronting people who, I lived during the 60s, a lot of you are too young for that. One of the common phrases was, if it feels good, do it. Those of you who are old enough to remember the 60s, remember that. If it feels good, do it. That's terrible advice. But that is the reigning ethos 
of the people who are on the other side right now. The thing about God is, those people can be persuaded to change sides. They are human beings in the image of God just like you are. They just got some bad software. And what your job is to go in there and reprogram their software and bring them over to our side so that we can trust them again, so that we can build a community of trust like what we used to have. And understand that a community of trust is not without conflict. I mean, the conflicts as we went through the time of the revolution and the time of the formation, I mean, there were intense conflicts. Doesn't mean we agree on everything, but we all had the same worldview. We all believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Didn't matter whether you believed in Yeshua or whether you believed in Moses, we were all on the same page. And so we could be a community. And that's what we need to get back to. And that has nothing to do with government. Government's in the way. And so what you want to do is you want to bypass government and you want to talk to your friends and neighbors and you want to bring them over to God's way of looking at things. Not everything. Brian and I disagree about stuff. Tino and I disagree about stuff. But at the fundamentals, we don't disagree. But you need to get people back into that frame of mind because then we can start trusting each other and then you don't need tens of thousands of pages of regulations because everybody is law-abiding instead of having everybody be compliant. Law-abiding is good, compliant is bad. You comply with regulations. You obey the laws of God. So, go out and make disciples. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.